Well, it's a great day to study the God's Word, and we're glad that you're here to join us for that purpose this morning. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. We thank you for this book that you have given us, and we pray that we might understand it. We pray that we might have courage to make application of it in our lives. Guide us now as we consider it together. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. The title of our lesson this morning is Practical Christianity. Today we're going to consider the relationship between orthodoxy, what we believe on the one hand, and orthopraxy, what we practice in everyday life on the other. We want to ask ourselves if there is a gap between the two, And if there is, what do we need to do about it? We'll consider the unification of doctrine and practice they go together. The verification of doctrine by our lifestyle. We can know what we truly believe by the way we live. And then the application of doctrine in sanctification. There was a time when the cities of Los Angeles and Glendale, and Burbank, and Pasadena, and Riverside, and Anaheim needed more electrical power, just like the church needs more spiritual power. Where would they get it? From the giant Hoover Dam, 726 feet tall, 660 feet thick at the base. The water from Lake Mead flows into the intake towers, And then it's carried at 85 miles an hour through 30-foot-in-diameter penstocks down to the power plant. And when it gets there, it begins to turn those giant turbines, and they generate the electricity. Three million horsepower of energy in those turbines from that water. It's hard to believe, but that generates three billion kilowatt hours of electricity annually. And that goes to those cities to supply the power for them. Water power is changed into electric power. Now, Bible doctrine is like that water. Millions of gallons flowing through those turbines to make them turn and generate the electricity. The water energizes the turbines that turn the generators And they produce the electricity. Likewise, the application of the doctrine in our lives should energize us, energize the believer to produce spiritual energy and growth in our lives. Just knowing Bible doctrine is not the same as spiritual maturity. There is a link there to put it together. We've seen doctrine now in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. We come now to a new section in Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And in those chapters, we're going to look at the practical application of the Bible doctrine. Ephesians 4 and verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Therefore, the word therefore, 
is a conjunctive adverb. The word is like Hoover Dam. It connects some things. The dam connects the water with the generators that generate the power. This word we're going to see Paul uses not just to connect two clauses in a sentence, but to connect some ideas and concepts in chapters 1 through 3 with some other ideas and concepts in chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, we understand who God is and how He works. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we're going to see what He requires of us. What do we do? What should we do? How should we live in the light of who God is and what He has done? So the therefore is going to get these two concepts together. These are two fundamental areas of Bible truth, but they're interdependent upon each other, just like the husband and the wife rely upon each other in marriage. So we'll be looking at these two areas. Now, Paul's purpose is to demonstrate that the practice in our lives is inferred from the doctrine. To get the doctrine, we suppose that we're supposed to do something with that doctrine, and we'll take a look at what we need to do with it. Also, the doctrine works in conjunction with the practice. We can't really separate the two. Suppose a neighbor calls you in the middle of the night. And he is very much alarmed, and he says that the second story of your house is on fire. The roof is about to cave in, and there's smoke coming out the top. What do you do? Well, therefore, or in light of that information, you quickly jump out of bed, throw on some clothes, grab your wallet, dash through the door, slamming it behind you to cut off the flow of oxygen. Obviously, if you have a family... You do more than that, but you act quickly and urgently because of the call that you got. Well, we get a call from God in the doctrine that He gives us, and that is to energize us to action, to take whatever steps are necessary to live out this doctrine in the life that we live in daily life. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Bible teaching ought to stimulate us into action. Now, look back in your Bibles, if you have them, at Ephesians chapter 1. And quickly look at what God has been teaching us about Himself, about the way He works, about what we call Bible doctrine. In chapter 1, we say, see, He has blessed us, He has chosen us, He predestined us, uh, He freely bestowed His grace upon us, in Him we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. He made known to us the mystery of His will. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. And then in chapter 2, we see that God, because of His great love, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive in Christ. He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in heavenly places. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And then we see Paul's prayer that is full of doctrine in chapter 3. Paul prays that he would grant you to be strengthened with power in his spirit through the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend 
with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's the doctrine. Now today we come to the intended effect, the designed result that God has for all that doctrine that he spoke through the Apostle Paul. Let's read a couple of other verses here. I therefore, says Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've seen something already of the unity that Paul emphasizes here. Unity in the church. A oneness among ourselves. Unity even between Jews and Gentiles we've seen. Now this unity is not based on external characteristics. It's not that we all have the same kind of tattoos or we all have the same kind of hairstyle or we all listen to the same music or wear the same kind of clothes. No, this is a oneness that's based on something internal where the Spirit of Christ is implanted in our hearts, is to conform us to His image, and then we begin to have a sense of concern for one another. Then we begin to do the one another's in Scripture. And as that unity begins to grow in the church... We see the love of Christ becoming more and more evident. And as we see that among ourselves in the body of Christ, it spills over out into the world. And the world is blessed because they see the unity that we possess that the world would like to have. And we fight wars and have councils and United Nations and all kinds of things to try to effect that unity, but we're not able to do it because it only comes through Christ. And Christ can take the diverse things and diverse people and nations and customs and cultures and put it all together in the church. And that's what we see, the church of Christ thriving all over the world. That's the unity that we're talking about. Now, we're going to see in the first half of our chapter, we won't get to all that today, but it describes the unity. The grounds for this unity are found in verses 4 through 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all is who is over all and through all and in all. Notice that momentarily here Paul slips back into doctrine. And he doesn't mind, doctrine and practice are so closely related, he doesn't mind sliding into doctrine right in the middle of the section on practical things. And we'll see that again, where he makes some reference to things that he has talked about already. We can't really separate doctrine and practice. God didn't intend it to be that way. Then in verses 7 through 11, we see the gifts that are necessary for unity in the church. And we need every person in the church to be exercising his or her gift for the sake of the body. I talk to people sometimes that say, I really don't care for church. I don't feel like I need church. I can worship God at home by myself. Well, that may be true, but the church needs you. And the church needs your gift. 
And then in verses 12 through 16, we see the goal of the church, that we all come into the unity of the faith. And that unity is described in verses 12 through 16. So the remainder of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, will expound on this intended effect of the doctrine in chapters 1 through 3. And the intended result of that doctrine is practical Christianity in daily living. We need to know about both. This is Paul's usual style in all of his epistles. He gives the doctrinal foundation, and then he gives the specifics of how it should work out in your life and practice. Here's what God's designed, and here's what we need to do about it. And Paul uses that word, therefore, 105 times just in his epistles. God says this, God has done this, therefore we need to do this. We're going to examine this word and draw from the analysis of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as we look carefully at this conjunctive adverb, therefore. God has done this, therefore we need to respond in such a way. Peter reminds us of the way that Paul writes. He always writes the same way. Excuse me, we're starting with number, the first section here. You can't separate doctrine and practice in the Christian life. So here is uh, Peter uh, talking about the way Paul writes. Second Peter 3, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Now, we don't want to be those ignorant and unstable people who don't understand how Paul is writing. So we want to see that he's going to tell us some things about God and the way he works, and then he's going to tell us what we need to do about it. There's good reason that Paul writes that way. So we've seen that we can't separate doctrine and practice in the Christian life. Some folks would like to do that, but it's just not intended to work that way. They might say, well, love unites... Doctrine divides, just give us Jesus. Have you ever heard anything like that? Because some people are not interested in doctrine because they don't think it's important. If you listen to that long enough, it almost sounds like they're saying love is God instead of God is love. And when you have a slogan like that, it tells you what to believe. And it almost sounds like they're saying love unites, but believing in the absolute truths of Scripture divide, so you should never say anything that's going to be divisive or offensive, uh, even if it's in, in the Bible. Well, there's another problem with that. You have to know what the Scriptures say about love if you're going to know if you're doing the loving thing for people. In the Bible, love is not based on feeling. How does it feel to be crucified? And yet the Bible says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live in Galatians 2.20. 
So we've got to have what Scripture says to define love and peace and patience and all of these things that God tells us we should exemplify in our lives. The assumption is that doctrine's bad, but unity is good. And so the only way to maintain unity is to refrain from saying anything unpopular in your preaching or your teaching. Keep the peace by focusing exclusively on the blessings and benefits that would be of palatable agreement to everybody. And that will maintain the unity in the body. Well, Paul has a very different idea about that. And I really think that the culture is not looking for the same old, same old in church. seems to me that the culture at large would be looking for something different, something that uh, really works in life to bring peace of mind besides substance abuse and the other things that people in the culture employ to try to find peace. We need to be able to show them something different. We need to give them the full counsel of God as stated in the Scripture. Paul says the way you accomplish unity in the church or the home or the marriage or any other group is, first of all, to commit your heart to Christ and then begin to follow His ways and His strength that He provides as outlined in the Scripture the teachings of the Bible, which we call doctrine. John Piper quotes George Barna, who has been surveying American evangelicals to see if we practice what we preach. How do you think we're going to come out in the survey? Well, he says, quote, Barna is finding that we don't preach doctrine from the Bible. Therefore, we don't practice differently from the world. For example, he says that evangelicals divorce at about the same rate as the nation at large. Only 9% of evangelicals tithe. How about that one? Of 12,000 teenagers who took the pledge to wait for marriage, 80% had sex outside marriage in the next seven years. 26% of traditional evangelicals do not think premarital sex is wrong. Well, we've seen that, haven't we? Then Ronald Sider weighs in on the topic in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. He emphasizes the importance of Bible doctrine, and here's what he says. Quote, Barna's findings on the different behavior of Christians with a biblical worldview underline the importance of theology. Biblical orthodoxy does matter. One important way to end the scandal of contemporary Christian behavior is to work and pray fervently for the growth of orthodox theological belief in our churches. End of quote. Well, that's what we're trying to do in this church, that we would teach what the Bible says. And that's going to help people more than just tickling their ears or giving them what they want to hear. Therefore, in verse 1, is a connective word. It connects the doctrine, the first three chapters, with the practice in the second three chapters, four through six. Doctrine may not be very popular in today's self-help religious context, but both are important. Where does ecclesiastical heresy come from? It comes from reaching over into some scripture and pulling something out of context and then trying to build a doctrine like the Arian heresy 
that takes all the verses about Christ's humanity to the exemption of all the verses about his his divinity. We can't skip around in the Bible. We've got to take it straight on through and look at everything that's there. And that's the reason we try to preach normally through a book of the Bible. There is the unity and the practice. Here is our second principle. We're to live in the light of the doctrine that we've been given. That's just the way God intended it to flow. But our lifestyle verifies what we believe. Well, what do you think we're supposed to do in the light of these first three chapters? Don't worry of trying to think up something because the Apostle Paul is going to tell us in great detail. Start off by walking worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This union of doctrine and practice will take care of a lot of our wrong feelings and fears and phobias because usually that's due to unbelief or a lack of faith or something that we have left out somewhere along the way or failed to believe. I mentioned in the pastor's perspective this week in the email, if you happen to read that, that many people have a wrong conception of God. They don't know the God of the Bible. They think that God thinks like I think. He likes the things that I like. He judges the things that I judge. And the sins that I overlook, He overlooks too. That's not the God of the Bible. We're told in Psalm 50, 21, These things I have done and I have kept silent. This is God speaking. These things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. How shall we then live in the light of Scripture? That question comes from Ezekiel 33. Modern philosophy gives us its answer, existentialism. Existentialism emphasizes individual existence and freedom and choice. According to this philosophy, humans define their own meaning in life. There's no meaning in the universe, so we have to define our own meaning and authenticate ourselves by trying to make rational decisions despite the fact we live in an irrational universe. That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that God is a God of order. And God created an orderly universe. And man, by use of his reason, can examine through science and investigation the universe and conclude some things about how it works. We don't know everything, but we're finding out more and more. The Bible gives us a doctrine of creation. And we don't, if we don't understand that doctrine of creation, everything from there on is going to be skewed through Darwinian evolution or something worse. And we don't know who man is, and we don't know what his problem is, and we don't know what the solution to his problem is. Well, that's where existentialism takes us. Let me read from Dr. Francis Schaeffer's book, How Shall We Then Live? He says, We, Christians, are following our own form of existential methodology. If we put what the Bible says about the cosmos, history, and absolute commands in morals 
in the realm of the culturally oriented. In other words, if we try to be pleasing to our culture and what we believe and what we teach, if we do this, the generation which follows will certainly be undercut as far as historic Christianity is concerned. Well, see, we ought to believe the Bible doctrine on the cosmos. How did it get here? And what's its purpose? And where is it going? And then not only that, but we've got to practice the morals that are given in the Scripture. It's going to take what we believe and also what we do. The therefore in verse 1 urges us on toward a life that we're supposed to live in light of the doctrine that we've been given. The Christian faith is not just an assortment of doctrine and theology. Now, there are those intellectual types who like to get off the bus right there. They like to study doctrine. They like to argue doctrine. They're very keen on denominational differences. They read books on doctrine. And that is good, and we need that. But if that's all there is, we may as well chop the book of Ephesians in half, because we've already had the doctrine section, and forget about chapters 4 through 6. No, we can't do that. We've got to have it all. We are given those first chapters in order that we might practically apply the doctrine in our lives. That's what teaches us how to live. Well, there's another group, and they're interested in knowing the fullness of God's love through experiences. And they're looking for experiences. And there may not be anything wrong with that, but sometimes they say doctrine divides and deadens while experience unites and transforms. They're looking for experiences that are so profound that I can know that God loves me and I can understand the fullness of His love because of what's happening to me in my life. Now, be careful. The weakness of basing your doctrine of the Christian faith on experience is that you don't have any way to really evaluate the experience that you are having. What if a big pile of adversity is unloaded at your front door. Does that mean God does not love you? Does that mean He's trying to punish you? Well, no. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, even as a son in whom He delights. You see, we've got to have Scripture to interpret what's going on in our lives. Because it's not always going to be just some good experience. Now, when I say experience, I'm not talking about practical knowledge or wisdom that's gained through observation, perception, understanding. I'm referring to happenings, events, unusual coincidences, and encounters of various kinds. There is something that is more important than experience, and we see that in the Scripture. I've got to understand the doctrine if I'm going to make any sense out of my experience. I might be in prison like the Apostle Paul is when he's writing this letter. But he understands he's the prisoner of the Lord. He's not the prisoner of the Roman Empire. Well, that's something that's more important than experience is words. Words. I've heard Ravi Zacharias say a word is worth a thousand pictures. Well, words are important in Scripture. Words are more important than experience. God's words 
that is. Let's take a look. Uh, there uh, we have the title, and then here we go to support that. John 6.63, it's the Spirit that gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Notice you can't separate God's Spirit and God's words. If you reject His words, you've rejected His Spirit. John 8.47, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. He's talking to a group of Pharisees. They're not of God, although they do have the knowledge. They do have the doctrine. Some of the doctrine, their doctrine is mistaken. John 14.23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And John 15.7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. In other words, if you have God's words, you'll be praying according to His will, and it will be done for you. The words of Christ applied from the Scriptures by the Spirit are more important than the experiences that we have, especially if we have an experience that we don't understand. Why did God do this in my life? Why has God given me this disease? Why are people treating me this way? If we see what's going on in the Bible, we can understand those things. On the other end of the spectrum, some people think Christianity is just a system of morals and ethics. It's just a way that you behave, a way that you act. Well, if you want to have that abundant lifestyle that Christ promises us, you've got to be personally connected with Him, and you've got to have His Spirit to help you apply these teachings so that you become conformed to His image. And that's the way we experience the abundant life. We do it in the strength of His grace. Now, we've been up on the mountaintop of biblical doctrine in the first three chapters, but now we're coming down into the valley of practical Christian living. And we better listen up because there are giants down in the valley. It's great to be up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, But as soon as you get back down, you're going to be running into problems. Now, we have to be careful here as we think about what God requires of us in the valley because some teachers and preachers say that God doesn't require anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't really have to profess anything. You just believe that He is there. I mean, you don't need a creed. You just believe that He's there and that He loves you, and that He's just going to live His life through you. So you just believe on Him, and you are willing to be made willing. Now that sounds pretty good, but we're going to see in Scripture there is work to do. That might approach in some vague fashion uh, the justification by faith alone. You don't have to do anything to accept Christ, uh, lift up the empty hands of faith, maybe repent of your sin. But now we're coming past justification to sanctification. And there's a lot that God wants us to do. When you become a Christian, you don't just put your life in cruise control and sanctification comes floating down from the sky. No, there are things that we have to do. So Paul says here to us in Ephesians 1, 3 
in Ephesians 1, therefore the prisoner, I the, therefore the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called. So practical Christianity is always the result of the application of the doctrine, or if it should, it should be. If we see someone is struggling with things in their life, they may be confused about who God is or how He works or what He has said. Sanctification is impossible unless we know the knowledge and then we're willing to apply it. So there's our verse again. Paul is encouraging us. He is entreating us. He is beseeching us to live life in a certain way. This is going to result in our being conformed to the image of Christ. Knowledge is not sanctification any more than the water in Lake Mead is electrical power. It's got to be run through that dam. This Bible knowledge has got to be run through our hearts so that we begin to understand why God says do the things that we do. Good news unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Would you like to be tough in the faith so that you're not blown about by every wind of false doctrine? When we lived in Alabama, we used to have a garden. And in the garden, we always planted some rows of corn. And we'd get out there and take a couple of kernels and put them in a little hole about that deep and about a foot apart. And then we would water it and then we would wait. And we would wait for some rain and some sunshine because that would be the stimulus that would cause that little seed to germinate. And then you would look out there to see if anything's happening and you would see a little green shoot popping up through the soil. And then that thing would grow and it would be about a foot high. And, it would, and then pretty soon it would be up above your head and there would be three or four stalks of corn and you would harvest the corn and everybody would enjoy that. But then came some real work. After the stalks had dried, Bob had to go out there and pull them up and get it ready for next time around. And that was a tough job because those stalks had dug in by the roots and sometimes I couldn't even pull them up. I had to go get some kind of tool and root it out of there. Well, the rain and the sunshine are not the growth They are the stimulus to the growth. And the Bible knowledge and the doctrine is not sanctification. It's the stimulus to sanctification. And if we want to be strong and tough as those stalks were, then we're going to be looking into what God is teaching us. We're going to be considering every aspect of what Scripture says. And we're going to be able to recognize false doctrine when it comes along. Some people get mixed up in the doctrine of salvation. They think you just plant seed and going about your business, that's all you have to do. Well, you might just come to God and say, I believe in you and I'm sorry for my sin. And that kind of puts you on the path. But there is more. How about this? Philippians 2, 12. Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We've got duties here, as well as doctrine. We've got sanctification, as well as justification. Has anybody had a good workout this week? 
Well, transfer that physical workout, the energy required, over into the spiritual area. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word is the doctrine. And the truth applied is how we live in practical Christianity. If we want to see God use this church, we need to get excited about that word, therefore. Here's what God said. What do we need to do? We need to walk worthy of the manner in which we've been called. Now, when we think of calling, we usually think of vocation. Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. This is talking about being called in Christ to be conformed to his image. A better word than called might be summoned. We are summoned to live the life of Christ. What do we need to do? Well, we need to walk worthy of that life to which he is called. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, he preaches Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Walk means that we just follow a certain course of life or conduct in the Old and New Testament. Worthy means that it's a sense of appropriateness. We walk in a way that is appropriate to a Christian. What does that look like? Colossians 1, 10 through 12. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In closing, here's a very brief example. One day Christ was teaching about being a servant. We're supposed to be servants. Christ came to serve, not to be served. And right after he finishes teaching them about being a servant, he says this, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And that's the message that I would leave with you this afternoon. If you know this Bible doctrine, happy are you if you do them. Now, of course, you have to know Christ in a personal way in order to have the power necessary to live this life that he's called us to live. That means repenting of your sin, asking him forgiveness, asking him to come into your life to take control of your life. There's a new authority in your life. Self is stepping down. Christ is stepping in. You can do that through prayer. And I would invite you, if you've never done that or if it wasn't real when you believed in Christ, to do so as I pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made it very plain in the Scripture what we need to do in light of what you have had to tell us. We ask that you would give us the courage to do these things that you have called upon us. I would pray, Lord, if someone here, if there's someone here who does not truly know you or who is not living for you, that this would be the time to repent, uh, the time to give up running my own life 
and to give over control to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You have chosen us before the foundation of the world. You've predestined us to adoption as sons. And you have freely given us your grace. And we're grateful for all these things you have done for us. And we pray that in love we might keep your word. Thank you that we all have a copy of the Bible. And we pray that uh, we might invest in understanding that word and that your spirit would guide us in doing so. Help us now, we pray, as we come to the time of memorial to remember your death and your resurrection for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.